0: Would you open God's word to Revelation chapter 7? Revelation chapter 7, verse 1 through the end of the chapter. If you are new to our congregation, if you're visiting our congregation, uh, and if you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, we encourage you to grab one of the Bibles provided in the chairs in front of you. They're black-looking books. We encourage you to open those books, the Bibles, to page number uh, 1031 as we hear God's word read and uh, proclaimed this morning. I pray that the Lord would speak to our hearts uh, through the preaching of his word. I pray the Lord has already spoken to us through what we have heard already, but I pray he will continue to do so through his word proclaimed. Here's God's word, Revelation chapter 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing, standing, at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with a seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Isaacar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this I looked, and behold, were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and honor and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these? Clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple Would you bow in prayer with me, asking God to bless the preaching and the hearing of his word. Almighty God, we pray that you would use your word to bring life, to strengthen, to encourage, and to give hope to your people. We pray this for the glory of your great name, through Jesus Christ and through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, Revelation chapter 7. For those of you who are new to our congregation, we are working our way through the book of Revelation. Last week we uh, preached through Revelation 6, and this morning we are working through and arriving at Revelation chapter 7. The passage we just read is made up of two big scenes. The scene of God sealing his servants. Uh, We see that in verses 1 through 8. And the second scene, uh, the scene of a great multitude that John sees in heaven uh, around the throne room of God. We see that in verses 9 through 17. Uh, These two scenes make up the first major interlude in the book of Revelation. Uh, An interlude that breaks up the the unfolding of the 21 judgments that God reveals in the book of Revelation. Uh, This interlude, chapter 7, and the other two that we will see later in the book, do not come in chronological order in the storyline of the judgments. Uh, In other words, the historical timing of these interludes, chapter 7 included, can refer to events in the past, present, or the future. They do not happen in chronological order after the sixth seal that we uh, talked about in the previous chapter. Chapter 7 is the first interlude that gives us another perspective on how we should understand God's revealing judgments. Now, what are we to make of these first two scenes in the the first interlude of these 21 judgments? What are we to make of these two scenes? What do they mean? What do they refer to? Some Bible interpreters think that these two scenes refer to two different groups of people. On one side, the first scene, they say would refer to the Jewish people, the ethnic Jewish people. And uh, the second scene would refer to the church. I would like to submit to you that that approach of interpretation is unlikely. For one, in the New Testament, the church, the people of God, whom God redeems from all the nations of the earth, are often described in images that were used for Israel in the Old Testament. And that is what we have here. Uh, There's a number of other evidences we could point to, but instead of interpreting these two scenes as referring to two different groups, as referring to Israel and the church, another way to interpret these scenes is to see them as referring to the same group of people, but described... Through two different images. Now this is not the first time the book of Revelation would use this kind of approach. Do you remember in Revelation 5 when John was introduced to Jesus uh, in the heavenly courtroom? John heard about the lion of the tribe of Judah. He heard about it. Through that imagery of a lion, but then when he turned and looked, what he saw was not a lion but a lamb, as though slaughtered. Now, if you were to take these two pictures—a lamb, oh, I mean a lion and a lamb—they are opposite pictures. Uh, The 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 lion uh, reflects the reign, the powerful, invincible rule. ...of an animal who is the king of the animal creation. The image of a lamb communicates... the, The lamb builds his kingdom. Jesus builds his kingdom through sacrificing himself. Now, these two images, if we were to take them by themselves, are opposite images. And yet, they present and represent the same reality. They describe Jesus from two different facets... Well, the same is going on here in Revelation 7. As John hears the number of 144,000, but then when he looks, he sees a vision of a multitude that cannot be counted. Even though we see these pictures, these scenes, to be very different, they describe the same reality, the people of God. And each of these scenes highlight a different aspect about the people of God. What are these two scenes telling us about the people of God? Now, in order for us to understand what these two different scenes communicate about the same reality about the people of God, it's helpful for us to remember the context. Chapter 7 is showing up in this book as an interlude, and the interlude uh, appears right after the first uh, six seals, and particularly the, the sixth seal is uh, an important seal to remember. Of the, fi- of the six seals, the last one, the sixth one, describe cataclysmic events that unfold as the wrath of God is promised to come. All creation, we are told, will be affected at the events of the sixth seal. Uh, and all creation will be affected by the judgment that God will bring as the second coming of Christ will be about to, uh, to come. And we are told at the end of the sixth seal that those without Christ will have no place to hide from these judgments. We are told that not even death will be able to hide uh, them from the wrath to come. Chapter 6 ended with a disturbing picture. Notice what people from every social status will say to the mountains and the rocks. Just look with me to the last few verses of chapter 6, particularly verse 16 and 17. The the kings of the earth, the generals, those, those with power, those with riches, but not only them, everyone, free or slave, look at what they will say. Verse 16, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? This indeed is a very important question for us to consider. When the great day of God's wrath will come, who can stand? This is a question we must keep in mind as we get into chapter 7. If chapter 6 ended with a question, who can stand? Chapter 7 will give us the answer. It's important for us to realize that chapter 7, it's like this interlude who says, all right, we got to a very important question in the unfolding of God's judgment. Now let's pause before the the final seal, the, eight, the seventh seal will, will be uh, opened up. Let's consider this question, who can stand? And the answer that chapter 7 will give is the servants of God. They can stand. This is what chapter 7 presents to us. In the face of the news of God's coming wrath. Who can stand the people of God, the servants of God? And chapter 7 will tell us the destiny of God's people. Should God's people be terrified when they hear of the judgments of God instead of being overcome with fear? Chapter 7 gives God's people great confidence. I was telling some folks this week who have been somewhat Uh, concerned to hear of all these judgments that started unfolding with chapter 6 that we looked at last week. I said, come back next Sunday. Chapter 7 is great. And this is the point. The destiny of God's people is a great destiny, even in the midst of a message that unfolds the 21 judgments of God's wrath. In this text, we see four characteristics of the destiny of God's people. And if you like taking notes, here are the four characteristics, and then we will go through them uh, briefly. The four characteristics of the destiny of God's people is divine protection, the fullness of God's people, divine salvation, and eternal provisions. Divine protection The fullness of God's people, divine salvation, and eternal provisions. These four truths are painted for us by these two scenes that we see in chapter 7. Let's look at each of these briefly. A destiny of divine protection. Notice what we see in the first three verses of chapter chapter 7. An angel commands four other angels not to harm the earth until they seal God's people with a seal. Now, people often wonder, what is this seal that is being used here in chapter 7? It's important to recognize and realize that a seal or being marked with a seal or a mark on a forehead uh, is going to be a feature characteristic of everybody in the book of Revelation. Everybody. It's a way of identifying To which kingdom people belong to. Later in this book, the beast will also put his mark on the people who belong to his kingdom. We will see that in Revelation 13. Many people get their attention perked up when they hear about the mark of the beast. But they forget that in Revelation... The first ones who are sealed off are the people of God. And we see that in Revelation 7. In the book of Revelation, there's only two categories of people. Those who are servants of God and are sealed with a seal of the living God. And those who belong to the kingdom of the beast who have his mark. There's got to be no neutral position. Everyone is going to be sealed with a seal. Either the seal of the living God. Or the mark of the beast. Notice when is it that God commands a sealing to take place? We're told that it's before the judgments of God are unleashed upon the earth. Look at verses two and three. When I saw another angel ascending from the rising uh, of the sun with a seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, "Do not harm." The earth or the sea or the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now, we should not assume that these four angels begin their work after the judgments of the sixth seal. Friends, the judgments of the sixth seal um, are the end, they, they describe the, the very end of the world. There is no more sealing after the sixth seal. The sealing here refers to the sealing that that these angels ought to do on God's people before they harm the earth. This interlude picks up the story of God's judgments from the beginning. It's important to understand that the timing when the sealing of God's servant happens is before the angels harm the earth. In other words, God is putting his seal on his servants so they would not be harmed. By God's judgments. Now, this pattern, friends, is present uh, in the Old Testament two times in very explicit ways. The first time shows up in the book of Exodus. It appeared when God brought the ten plagues against the people of Egypt. And as the plagues increased in intensity, God began making a distinction between the land of Egypt and... And the territory of Goshen, where God's people lived. Read the story of the Exodus to see that. But the second place where this happens is centuries later, during the exile. When God decided to act in judgment against his own very people, because they have rebelled against God. In Ezekiel chapter 9, God commanded his angels... To bring devastation upon the people of Jerusalem and of Israel. And to wipe them out entirely because of their rebellion against God. Nevertheless, before God gave them the green light to execute the destruction, God commanded that his faithful servants should first be sealed off before the destruction is executed. In other words, in the Old Testament, God protected his faithful people and sealed them off so that they would not be affected by the destruction that God would bring against the earth. The same pattern is now present in Revelation chapter 7. Before God's divine judgments unfold upon the earth, God seals his people. So his people will not be affected by God's coming wrath. In this book, God's people suffer. They do suffer. But it's not at the hand of the wrath of God. They will suffer at the hand of the beast and the kingdom of the beast who will pursue God's servants. But they will not suffer at the hand of the divine wrath of God. Now, the separation and the sealing that God makes over his people should lead us to have no fear concerning God's coming wrath upon the earth. Sometimes I hear believers, when they, when they hear about God's coming wrath, they, 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 they get antsy, they get f- afraid. And, and chapter 7 of Revelation tells us, people of God, do not be afraid. Have confidence in God's protection of his people from his wrath. I love how one Bible interpreter said, Where the threatening visions unleashed by the first six seals are designed to awaken fear in the readers by stripping away a false sense of security, the expansive vision of the redeemed gives readers reason to claim their identity as the people of God, offering a renewed sense of confidence. That's what chapter 7 does for us Who are the people of God. But there's a caution here. As I said later in the book, we will see that God's servants also suffer. While they have protection from the wrath of God. Protection from the wrath of God makes God's servants to be the target of the rage of the beast. And some of the servants of God will actually be killed in the process. So we should not understand that somehow the destiny of divine protection is a blank check against any kind of suffering. The sealing of God's servants protects them from the wrath of God, but not from the wrath of the beast. And the question we can pose for us is, ask ourselves, ask yourself, which protection would you rather have? Protection from the wrath of God? Or protection from the rage of the beast. We cannot have both. To compromise and seek the protection from the rage of the beast makes us a target of the wrath of God. While chapter 6 introduced us to how terrifying the wrath of God is, chapter 7 assures us that the people of God will be protected from his wrath. What a joy! What a confidence! that is. But the second point we see in these scenes is that it's a destiny for God's people. It's a destiny for the fullness of God's people. The second point we see is, is that these scenes tell us that this destiny of protection is for the fullness of God's people. When John hears the number of the sealed, the 144,000, it causes questions. It may be surprising to hear that Such a specific number defines uh, the people of God who are protected from, from the wrath to come. Now, some interpreters take this number very literally to refer to the remnant of the Jewish people in the final time of the tribulation. If we take this number literally, it is not referring to a big number. When you consider that it's talking about a whole nation. When we compare 144,000 to a whole nation, even though it's a small nation like this nation of Israel, uh, this number is still a very small number. But we should not take this number literally. For one, it's going to show up again in chapter 14. Uh, Second of all, when we see how this number is broken down, we get some clues about what this number represents. In verses 5 through 8, we see how this number, 144,000, is broken down. It's broken down in 12 portions of 12,000. Uh, it's 12,000 multiplied by 12, uh, representing the tribes of Israel. Now, in Revelation, the number 12 is a number of the fullness of God's people. Actually, it's not just in Revelation that that shows up. Remember when Jesus began his ministry and he selected uh, a group of followers, some disciples whom he was going to send out as his apostles. Do you remember the number of disciples Jesus chose to be um, um, around him? There are 12. Why? Because Jesus was representing that he is restoring Israel, he is restoring God's people. Number 12 is a symbolic representation of the fullness of God's people. The same number shows up again at the end of the book of Revelation, in chapter 21. When we see the uh, and read of the vision of the new heavenly Jerusalem, we hear that the new heavenly Jerusalem has 12 gates with the name of the 12 tribes of Israel on them. And the new Jerusalem has also 12 foundational stones and the names of the 12 apostles on the 12 foundational stones. Now, if we put these numbers 12 times 12, the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes, if you do the 12 times 12, it's 144. It represents a fullness of God's people. But then you have the thousand. What do you do with a thousand? Some people like to interpret thousand in a very literal way. But in the book of Revelation, the number 1,000 is a symbolic number that represents a very, very, very large amount. The number 1,000 should not be taken literally. If you multiply 144 times 1,000, it becomes a symbol not merely of 144 individuals. It represents a very, very, very large crowd of people. That's a fullness of God's people. I love how one commentator said, This paradoxical vision of chapter 7 takes readers... Into a world where specific numbers refer to a crowd that is numberless. Where blood makes clothing white. And where a lamb acts as a shepherd. The, vision of, uh, the visions of scenes of chapter 7 put us face to face with realities that, humanly speaking, you, just, you can't just match up. But they're not supposed to be matched up, humanly speaking. These are symbolic realities that communicate a spiritual truth that God wants to tell us. Notice, in this sense, that when you might ask, "Well, still, why, why do we have the 12 tribes of Israel named one by one? Again, I think one way to understand it is going back to what Jesus was doing with his 12 disciples. Jesus came to restore the 12 tribes of Israel. Not merely as a physical ethnic people. But to restore the promises that God has given to Israel. And the fulfillment of the promises God has given to Israel is not merely an ethnic Israel. It is actually the people of God as it unfolds in the New Testament. One Bible commentator said it so sweetly and, and, and well. God's promises to preserve and to restore the tribes of Israel is kept by redeeming people from every tribe and nation through the death of Jesus. So that's why we get the listing of the 12 tribes. God is restoring the promises made to his people But the result of that restoration is a crowd from every nation, every language, every tribe and peoples. Notice the second picture that John sees. It's exactly that picture, that result, the sight of a great multitude standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And we see this in verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude. No one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. It's a multitude that no one can count. It's a multitude that is not just coming from one nation, but from every nation. Friends, that's why we give money to international missions. That's why we support international mission partners that are not just here in Austin, not just in our nation, but are throughout the earth. Because Jesus, when he is proclaimed among the nations, he will draw people from every nation. And the crowd that will be before the throne is a crowd coming from every nation of the earth. That's why, as a church, we're committed to make sure the gospel gets to be heard among all the nations of the earth. But they're dressed in white robes. This multiple multitude and, and countless crowd is, is dressed in white robes and have palm Branches, The white robes shows the purity that these people have obtained. We're going to look a little later how they have obtained that purity. The, the palm branches, this was a Jewish practice of showing victory. Actually, it was not just a Jewish practice. It was a practice common in ancient times, showing victory and deliverance. In other words, this crowd that no one can count is a crowd celebrating victory and deliverance. Indeed, this is how... All of God's servants will appear before God's throne celebrating the victory and the deliverance that God accomplished for them. So the scene of the 144,000 and the great multitude shows us the fullness of God's people whom God seals and protects from his judgments. And they will appear as a countless multitude before the throne in white robes and victorious celebrating the deliverance that God has given them. But notice what else we're told about this great multitude, about the people of God. A third point that we see in this passage is that it's a destiny of divine salvation. It's a destiny of divine salvation. Look at verse 10. What, are these, what is this multitude crying when they are before the throne of the Lamb? Verse 10, crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, their, their song is important for us to hear. They make clear that the salvation that they've experienced does not belong to us. We, we don't save ourselves. We don't figure out a way to, to escape the tribulation on our own. We don't pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. We don't even participate with God in our salvation. It's not that God works some and then we work some and we bring, each of us bring a little thing to the table and we make a deal and it's a, it's a great deal. It doesn't work that way. These, these redeemed ones make it very clear, salvation belongs. To God and to the Lamb. Friends, I wonder if in your own heart, you might harbor any thoughts that salvation belongs in some way, at least partially. At least a small percentage to you, to what you have done. Oh, dear friends, do not rely on yourselves to change in order for God to save you. Do not say, oh, i got to first change, and then I'm going to come to God. Oh, i got to clean up myself, and then I'm going to come to God, and God will save me. Oh, no, dear friends. It's the exact opposite. God saves us because salvation belongs entirely on Him. And based on that salvation, He changes us. He changes our hearts. And when He changes our hearts, He gives us new desires. He gives us new abilities. He gives us new hungers. What we are called to do is is surrender. Give up trying to to do it on your own. Let Him take over. Trust in Him for His salvation. His salvation is entirely the work of God. Now, on what basis do do, do these people come before the the throne of God? Look, Look with me at what happens in verse 14. The the elder says that they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Again, this is symbolic language. Normally speaking, blood, if you wash anything in blood, it does not make white. If anything, it stains in a way that's going to be hard to make it white again. And yet, this is a beautiful part of what the gospel actually presents here. It is the blood of the Lamb. That makes our robes, our clothing, our lives white. Our, our lives are purified from the stain of sin through the blood of Jesus. The blood of the Lamb cleanses us from our sin. First John 1, 8 and 9 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, sin not only makes us guilty before God, sin also stains us before God. And The great multitude before the throne is characterized by white, white robes which represent not the good deeds they have done to the Lord, not the cleansing that they have tried to do on their own, trying to get themselves rid of, of the dirt of their lives. No, it's it's a cleansing that they've experienced because they have come and trusted in the blood of the Lamb to make them clean. Oh, friends, we have a hymn that we sometimes sing in this congregation and asks the question, what can wash away my sin? And the answer that, question is nothing but the blood of Jesus. Friends, I wonder if you have experienced the washing of the stains of sin in your life. Ever, have you ever trusted in Christ for the cleansing of your sin? It is not sufficient to merely believe that Christ exists, but also to rely on His sacrifice as the only means by which we can be cleansed. Our sin. I love how one Bible commentator said the vision shows a multitude standing before God's throne. And the reason that they can do so is that the God of wrath is also the God who provides salvation through the blood of the Lamb. This is great news for God's people. This is great news for everyone who would hear this truth and repent and trust in Christ. Christ. Friends, if you've never repented and trusted in Christ, in His sacrifice, in His shed blood for our sins, I would encourage you, I would plead with you, don't leave this place without turning to Christ and asking Him to wash your sins away through His blood. If you'd like to know more about that, I'd encourage you to talk to another Christian or come and talk to me or any of the pastors here at the end of the service. But don't walk away from here without that confidence that your sins are washed away in the blood of the lamb the song of this great multitude um, is accompanied by the worship of all the angelic beings of heaven when the great multitude sings this song that salvation belongs to our god and to the lamb look at what the whole heaven does how they react verse 11 and 12 and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and around the four living creatures They fell on their knees, on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and honor and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. This is how heaven responds to hearing the declaration that the salvation of this great multitude belongs to God and to the Lamb. I wonder, I wonder. Does our hearts, or do our hearts, respond to God's salvation with the same chorus as the worship of heaven? When we consider that salvation belongs to our God, not to us, not to our works, not to our contribution, but entirely and exclusively on God, apart from any effort on our side, do we bow down and respond with worship to God? Do we ascribe to Him the blessing? Glory, the wisdom, thanksgiving, the honor, the power, and the might. The vision shows a multitude of people standing before God and a multitude of angels bowing before Him, praising God for His salvation. The final point we see about the people of God and the destiny of the people of God is not only that they experience um, God's salvation, a divine salvation. But the destiny of the people of God is that it has eternal provisions. It's a destiny of eternal provisions. The image of this great multitude causes an important dialogue between John and the other elders. Verse 13, one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? For where have they come? And John doesn't know. This gives us an important clue, friends. The visions of revelation are not sufficient without the interpretation that God's Spirit provides through his agent. So just having visions doesn't mean that you get it. Here's an example of John having an amazing vision, and he's still clueless about what all this means. We need God's Spirit and God's revelation to interpret even the visions of this book. The first explanation that John gets is in verse 14. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. Now, the great tribulation should not be understood to refer just to the tribulation that's immediately coming before the second coming of Jesus. Do you remember how John described his, his time on the island of Patmos? He said in, John, in Revelation 1.9, John, a partner in the tribulation and the kingdom. When when Jesus described the situation of the church in Smyrna, in chapter 2, verse 9, Jesus said to the church in Smyrna, I know your tribulation. You see, the word for tribulation in the book of Revelation doesn't refer to just the very, very end of the end times. It actually, the entire end times, from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ, is characterized by tribulations for God's people. The great multitude is coming out of the great tribulation. But notice the contrast of what they are coming out of and what they are going into. In, in, in the following verses, verse 15 and 16, we see a contrast. The great tribulation, that's where they used to be. And notice what they're given, what God provides for them. God will be their shelter, wilderness is over, the lamb will be their shepherd and God will remove the tears from their eyes. God will be their shelter, the presence of God. He who sits on the throne will be their shelter. In Revelation 4.3, John saw the presence of God, and he, the only way John could describe it is, it's like precious rubies, like precious stones who emanate a glorious presence. And now we hear that this glorious presence will shelter God's people. What a difference, Tribulation. Versus being sheltered by the presence of God. The second benefit, the second provision is that wilderness is over. Have you seen the, the negative ways in which God's provisions are described in verse 13? They shall hunger no more. They shall thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them anymore, nor any scorching heat. Have you ever wondered why would these provisions be described in this negative way? Through, the, through negative terms? What not? Well, these were all descriptions of what the people of God have experienced in the wilderness of the Exodus. It's as if Revelation is saying, when this will happen, the wilderness journey is over. There will be no more thirst. There will be no more hunger. And would you, if you remember, it was thirst and hunger that caused God's people to, to complain against God in the wilderness. These were serious tests that God has given to his people. And God says, when this comes, no more thirsting, no more hunger, no more scorching sun that will, that will he, uh, hit God's people. Oh, friends, God's people will reach God's final destiny, the eternal promised land in God's provisions in all eternity. Not only that, but the lamb will be their shepherd. Now, this is a strange combination. How can a lamb be a shepherd? This shows the sufficiency of Jesus. Jesus is both the lamb whose shed blood provides a cleansing through which people from every nation become the people of God. But Jesus, as a lamb who has been slain, is also the shepherd who guides God's people and provides for God's people. Friends, we need not only the the cleansing of our sins, but we need the guidance and the protection of a shepherd and the lamb will be the shepherd and he will lead us to springs of living water. Not Not only that, but God will make a final provision for his people. And the final provision we see in this passage is that God will also remove Wipe away the tears from their eyes. Verse 17. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now this is an amazing contrast here. Remember that in chapter 4. John could not look at God. And tell us what he saw in detail. Because the glory of God cannot be described through the human eyes. It's just. Too indescribable. And yet, here we see the indescribable God looking in our eyes. And looking at the tears of our eyes. And wiping them away. It's amazing. This means that the destiny of God's people involves tears. Involves tribulation. But neither the tears nor the tribulations are the final destiny for God's people. God's eternal provisions will be such that tribulations and tears will become a matter of the past. Dear brothers and sisters, in Christ, while our journey in this earth will involve the tribulations and the tears, Jesus himself gave us the warning, in this world you will have trouble. But this text reminds us That those who belong to God, those whom God seals as his servants, those who are his, God will provide an eternal provision for all those whose garments are washed in the blood of the Lamb. Friends, what a glorious confidence, what a glorious future, what a glorious hope, even in the midst of a message that tells us about the coming wrath of God. In this passage, we have seen four characteristics. Of the destiny of God's people, divine protection, the fullness of God's people, divine salvation, and eternal provisions. Friends, I pray that these truths are ours, every one of us. We have confidence in this God who provides salvation in this way. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we praise you for revealing your ways for us, revealing your ways plans, both of judgment and salvation. We praise you that you have provided a lamb whose blood is the means for our salvation. We praise you that in Christ and in him alone we have hope. We have hope against your judgments. We have hope of, of being passed by your wrath. Father, we pray that in Christ alone we would have hope also for the future. It is through him And in him that we come before you in confidence, trusting in you, and hoping in you for all eternity. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.